Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that as we consider your word, especially this word in Revelation, um, as it's sometimes fantastic, it's sometimes uh, frightening, it's sometimes uh, almost discouraging, I pray that you would use it uh, to, to make us urgent in our faith, that you would use it to, to make us more and more uh, desirous to see the world come to know Jesus. I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. I've developed a habit over the past, I'm almost 46 now, over the past 46 years, and that is a habit of being wrong incredibly often. (laughs) Um, You know, when I was 17 years old, I became a Christian. I never went to church, really. I became a Christian and that was on a Thursday night, sometime in December. And on Sunday morning, the Presbyterian church that sponsored the camp where I became a Christian asked me to give my testimony. I didn't even know what that meant. And they just said, well, just stand up in front of the church and tell people how you became a Christian this week. And it was a pretty big church. I'm guessing about a thousand folks. And so never having really gone to church, one of my first forays was actually speaking and so I stood up and I gave my testimony. I told people how I'd come to know Jesus. And I came and I sat down. It was First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach beside the pastor, whose name was Lucky, which is a great name for a Presbyterian pastor. Um, I sat down and he leaned over and he said, I think you're going to be a preacher someday. And I leaned back and I said, I will never be a preacher. Later on, after I got out of the army and I went to college, someone uh, said, you know, we think, we think you ought to be a pastor. And I said, I'm never going to be a pastor. I'm going to be a teacher. And I ended up going from seminary to Atlanta to become a pastor. Once I got to Atlanta, people said, you know, we think you need to plant churches. And I said, you know what? I'm never going to plant a church. I can't, I, I can't imagine planting a church. Why would anyone want to plant a church? I'm never going to do it. Which means, a couple of years later, I was planting a church in Capitol Hill in Seattle. And for years, my wife has been an avid uh, fitness enthusiast. I've been basically the opposite and uh, people would talk about running, and they'd talk about running marathons. And I said, you know what? I'll never run a marathon. Why would you need to? In other words, I always tell my wife, I said, if, you, if you're in shape enough to run five miles, you're in shape enough, really, that you don't need to. Right? And so I said, I'll never do it. Well, which means in October I'm doing it. And the reason that's important is, is if you think about how, what, what happens when a 45-year-old guy decides he's going to run a marathon for the first time and he hasn't run in about 20 years. Well, you better figure out how to do it without dying. And so that's what I've spent, spent a while doing. And I came upon this plan a buddy of mine gave me. And, and I've actually done pretty well on it, but be, it's because it's built upon basically what I'm going to call intervals. That you start out at nothing, and he'll say, you know, walk or run three miles. You know, uh, this is on Monday. And you basically, you, you run three miles on Monday or four miles. You run three miles on Wednesday. And then the first week, you run three miles on Saturday. The next week, you run three miles on Monday. You run three miles on Wednesday. Or, and then you run. By the way, you're supposed to be doing cross-training in between, but it's a minor thing. Um, and then the next Saturday, you run four miles. And then you do three, three, and then the next Saturday you do six, and then you do three, three, and the next Saturday you actually do three, and then you do three, three, and the next Saturday you do eight. And in other words, at each time, it takes you to a point where you say, man, this is crazy, I don't want to do this anymore. And the next week, you only have to do three. And when you do three, you're like, oh, this isn't that bad. And then the next week, you do it against ten. Oh. 
And the whole plan, it's not just that by week, it's actually that during the course of the run. So you run three minutes, walk a minute, run three minutes, walk a minute, run three minutes, walk a minute. And then after a few miles, you run four minutes, walk a minute, run four minutes. And so the way I tend to do it, I was telling someone in, in the NPR earlier, they said, do you look forward to the next thing or the next race or the next mile marker? I said, I look forward to the next minute. I look at my watch and I say, I've got two minutes left until I get to walk again. One minute left until I get to walk again. In other words, it, just when things begin to get intense, you get to take a break. You get to take an interlude. You get to take a breather. And then, of course, just as soon as you're starting to catch your breath, you've got to take off again. Now, why did I tell you all that? I told you all that because that's exactly how John has written the book of Revelation. He's almost written it as a series of very intense events that right when he takes you to the edge and says, I can't do this anymore, he gives you an interval. Or in this case, theologians call it an interlude. In other words, he'll take you up, he'll give you six seals that are very intense, and between the sixth and the seventh seal, he takes a break for a whole chapter and tells you something else. And you say, I think I can do this again. And then you get to the seventh seal, and it's actually pretty hard. And so over and over again, he basically talks about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of God's wrath. But interspersed in all of these things are these intervals or these interludes. And the reason that's important today is because today, chapter 10 of the book of Revelation is one of those interludes. It's a big interlude. In fact, um, Revelation chapter 10 and 11 are the midpoint of the book of Revelation. And the whole rest of the book hangs on what happens in these two chapters. And so chapter 11 is also an interlude. We'll look at that next week as well. Before we do that, I've got to give you basically the whole story so far. Remember in chapter 1? Chapter 1, you basically had a prologue to the book of Revelation. And in it, you found out that the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. And an apocalypse means to reveal something. And it's like pulling a curtain back. And remember what it reveals? It reveals the person and work of Jesus. We also saw that it's a letter to seven churches. So everything in the whole book, of its prophecy, of its future, of its past, is written for the churches to use in the present. And then finally, we saw that it was prophecy. And in prophecy, it was basically means that it's looking for some kind of moral response to what's written. In other words, some people, we think about a prophecy and we think it's a prediction of the future. Sometimes it is. But even when it's a prediction of the future, it's a prediction that's geared to motivate you in the present. It's trying to get some kind of moral action or ethical action out of you. And so it was an apocalypse, it was a letter, and it was also a prophecy. And then also, finally, it was a, dis a discussion of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is described in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation in great detail, using all these great Old Testament images. And so you move from that to chapters 2 and 3, which is the letters to the seven churches, commonly known as. And if you've been around for a while, you know that all the churches had the same problem. At least five of them had the same problem, and two of the churches were borderline. And the problem that all five, five of the churches had and two of the churches were floundering with was just the whole issue of being outwardly faced, of witnessing their faith to the outside world. So on one hand, they were being persecuted, and on the other hand, Jesus tells the seven churches, in spite of the fact that you're being persecuted, you still need to be outwardly faced. You still need to be witnessing to the world. And the churches at some level were failing at that mission. You, you know, by the way, every church that I've ever been in flounders in that mission. 
Every church that I've ever been in flounders at being outwardly faced. And by the way, outwardly faced is not mercy ministry. Outwardly faced is not those things. When I mean outwardly faced, I mean going out and either telling people about Jesus or going out and bringing them in so they can hear about Jesus. That's the big picture. And most of us, were afraid to do that. And if you're afraid to do that, well, then you need to bring people in and let someone else do it. But all of the churches, remember the church at Ephesus? The church of Ephesus was one of the greatest churches that, that ever existed. That even it had very many famous people there. John was the pastor there at some point. Jesus' mother, Mary, was a member there. And yet that church was also rebuked, saying you've lost your first love. You can have great programs. You can have great vacation Bible school. You can have great growth groups. You can have all these things. But if you are not being outwardly faced, if you're not reaching people and seeing people come to know Jesus, you're failing. And that's what the letters to the seven churches are. It doesn't just say you're failing. It says you're failing, but here's how to buttress yourself. Take heart in the person and work of Jesus. It worked for you. It will work for other people. You continue on. How do you know that? Because in verse, chapters 4 and 5, you have this great vision. You have a vision first in chapter 4 of God's throne room. And then in chapter 5, you have this vision of Jesus himself in the throne room. And that's where we get this sort of odd thing. Remember when John oftentimes will say, I, I heard one thing, but then I saw another thing. And in chapter 5, he says, I heard someone say, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He says, I turned and looked, and what I saw was a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And we see that in chapter 7. He says, I heard the number 144,000, but when I looked, I saw basically people from every tribe, tongue, and nation without number. And so we see this vision of the lamb who had been slain, who is sovereign, who is in control of all things. And that brings us to chapter 6. Because remember chapter 5, John started weeping because this scroll was handed. He saw a scroll and he started weeping. He said, who is worthy to open it? And the elder says, the lamb who was slain is worthy to open it. And so Jesus starts opening the seals. And as the seals are broken, basically what we see in the scroll is all of the history, both past and into the future, being unraveled or un unrolled to us. And so what you see in the seals and in the trumpets and in the bowls that we're going to look at is basically his, human history, especially from the time of Jesus' resurrection until the very end of time. And so some of it is past, some of it is future. And some of it is happening right now. And each of the, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, they don't necessarily look at the, all these things from a different angle, but they look at them from an intensified point of view. In other words, the, 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 bowl, the trumpets are more intense than the seals, and the bowls are more intense than both of them. And because what I think is the, John is trying to do, or God is trying to do through John in the, with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, is he is trying to motivate the church. Because we see in these things what happens to those who do not trust Jesus. We started looking at chapters 8 through 11, which are the trumpets. Today we'll look at an interlude between uh, the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. But if you remember last week, why does John record all these things that are happening? It's to motivate the church, again, to be outwardly faced. Because if you remember what, what is happening with the trumpets... First of all, they have a sort of correlation with the, the book of Exodus and the plagues. And during the trumpets, the first trumpet, if, if I remember correctly, the first trumpet was a third of the earth was burned. The second trumpet came and a third of the sea was destroyed. The third trumpet came and a third of the, the fresh water on earth was destroyed and wormwood was here. The fourth trumpet came and it was a plague of darkness before people started to die. 
Last week we looked at the fifth trumpet, and the fifth trumpet was sort of these human-sized demonic locusts who are, who are given uh, the freedom to torment everyone on earth who is not, did not have the seal of God on their forehead. As you get deeper in the book of Revelation, you'll find out that there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are people who have the seal of God on their forehead or people who have the seal of the beast. You are either one or the other. And as you see the, these locusts being released on those who do not have the seal... The only reason we could know is hopefully it would motivate us to pity. Why would you not tell someone if you knew that was coming? And then in, this, and then in the sixth trumpet, rather, what you see is this demonic army being released. And remember, it was so big, it was two times infinity, if there could be such a thing. And many people were killed. But in spite of everyone being killed, it said that some people still refused to repent because they loved their idols more than they loved anything else. And it comes to get to a point of just sheer intensity. And I even speculate, I wonder if John was getting to a point where he couldn't take it anymore. And God reels things back and then gives him this interlude, which is chapters 10 and 11. And how do you understand the interludes in the midst of the seals? The first thing you see with the seals, the trumpets and the bowls, is that basically the seals, the trumpets and the bowls, all of them are judgments that are predicted or or uh, spoken toward earth dwellers. Okay? And earth dwellers in the book of Revelation is a synonym for unbelieving people. So all the things you see in the seals, all the things you see in the trumpets, and all the things you see in the bulls are directed as judgments toward those who refuse to believe. So what's the purpose of the interludes? The interludes are directed toward the church, and the interludes are there for instruction. In other words, the church, the church gets to sit back and through John's eyes see these judgments are coming and then you have an interlude that takes a break and says, now here's your role in the midst of this. Here's where you are. Remember the seals were broken up between the sixth seal and the seventh seal? We saw the 144,000 and the tri- people from every tribe, tongue, and nation without number and they formed a mighty army. What's your role in the midst of God bringing judgment on the earth? It's to be part of this army, this Christus Victor, where Jesus, we take the gospel to the ends of the earth and we win the war of the gospel. But remember, in Christianity, you win by losing. You win the battles by giving up your life, not by taking other people's lives. And so then you get to the trumpets and you have this other interlude. That's what we're going to look at today. So with all of that background, look at verse 1. So John says in verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs like pillar of fire. So the first question I would imagine you should ask, I ask, is who is this angel? He says, I saw another mighty angel. And we're given a description of this angel that's unlike any other angel in the book of Revelation, for sure. And so the first thing you see about this angel is he's wrapped in a cloud. Well, the only person who's really wrapped in a cloud in the Bible most often is God himself. That God, when he comes in his glory, comes in a cloud. The temple, the cloud fills the temple with his glory. That God, Jesus will, remember it said he ascended into the clouds, he will come again in like manner. So this angel is, is, some people think it is either Jesus or it is the angel of the Lord or something else. But either way, it is a representative of God. Because the next thing you see is that he has a rainbow over his head. What is the rainbow in the Bible? The rainbow is one of the preeminent, besides the cross, one of the preeminent signs of God's mercy. Remember after the flood, God came to Noah and he said, I put my bow in the clouds, not to remind you, 
You realize that God didn't put a rainbow, didn't give the rainbow to remind us that he would never flood the earth. He said, Noah, I put my bow in the clouds to remind me that I would never flood the earth. And so when we see the rainbow, we should be, we should be encouraged to know that God will never forget. And we saw in chapter 4 that the rainbow was around the throne of God. And now the rainbow has been transferred with this authority of transferring authority to Jesus, that this representative now has the rainbow. He actually carries it with him. And then his face was like the sun. And again, that is a reference to glory. And the final one, it says his legs were like pillars of fire. Remember in the book, we're we're sort of like looking at the book of Exodus in many ways with the plagues and Israel being released from Egypt. And how, how were they guided from Egypt? They were guided by a pillar of fire by night and the pillars of smoke by day. And the pillars of fire should bring to mind what God did for them in bringing them out of Egypt. He not only delivered them from Egypt, but he also promised to protect them until they got to the promised land. In some sense, the whole gospel is embodied in those legs, these pillars of fire, because in the Old Testament, the promise that they would have believed is that God is going to deliver them from Egypt and he will promise to get them into the promised land and when they see this representative coming with all of these things which by the way you see the same things of jesus in chapter one now is it jesus here probably not is it the angel of the lord i don't know whoever it is this mighty angel he definitely is supposed to be to us a representative of everything jesus represents to us his mercy, his power, his glory, his deliverance, and his promise to finish the job. And so John sees this mighty angel show up. And then what happens? He says in verse 2, he says he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. Now, the big, one of the million-dollar questions in the book of Revelation is, what is this little scroll? In other words, remember there's a big scroll in chapter 5, which, which if I'm correct, is, is the, the sort of human destiny scroll, that everything that's going to happen between then and the end of time, what is this scroll? And there are chapters and chapters and chapters of stuff to read if you're interested. Books, PhD dissertations, people spend their life trying to figure out what this scroll means. And I think I can, I'm going to tell you the real, the, the right answer <laughs> right now. Um, it's just, I think it's just a smaller chapter of the big scroll. It's a smaller version of the big scroll. In other words, it's not a, re, a reiteration of all of human history. It's probably a reiteration of what's coming up next in chapter 11 because chapter 11 gets pretty gnarly. Chapter 11 is when Christians start being killed. Chapter 11 is when Christians are killed and, and, the, and the unbelieving people dance around their, their naked, dead, rotting corpses. And then God comes and raises them from the dead. I think it's that kind of stuff that's in the little scroll. What's more important to notice here, I think, is how the angel is standing. It says that he has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Think how huge this angel would have had to be in John's vision for him to have a foot on the sea and a foot on the land. And that's basically an Old Testament way of saying he is sovereign over all things. Again, it's a communication of God's sovereignty. And if you don't know what the word sovereign means, it just means that he is in control of all things, that he rules all things, whether it's on the earth or whether it's on the heaven. In the Old Testament, if you control something, it is said to be under your feet. And so this angel who represents Jesus also has all of the world under our feet. Now that's important because if you're reading a book that's encouraging you to go and take the gospel to people that might kill you, you want the person who is telling you to do that to have some manner of control over your life, don't you? 
In other words, it's not capricious. Whatever message comes from this angel's mouth or whatever is in that scroll comes from the one who is in control of all things. Which leads to the next verses. In verse 3b, he says, When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now this is one of the most interesting parts in the book of Revelation, at least for people discussing it. Because on one hand, it sounds like John is writing things down in real time as he sees them or hears them. And the angel cries out and the seven thunders respond. And he starts to write down whatever they're saying. And another voice from heaven says, don't write this down. In fact, seal it up. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And that's all you hear about it. Now, why is that included? John didn't, if John did not include these verses, we wouldn't have known any better and it wouldn't have mattered. For some reason, he did include it. That the angels spoke in the seven thunders. Some people say it was seven more plagues that God himself was showing pity. That there was, you know, between the seals and the, the trumpets and the bowls, God didn't want to add seven more things. I think it's actually simpler than that. I mean, on one hand, the reference to the seven thunders, most people agree that it's a reference to Psalm 29 that I opened up with. Remember, the, Psalm 29 opens, says basically the voice of God thunders, and then it thunders in seven different ways. In other words, it thunders over all of creation, the voice of God thunders. And when John's going to write it down, he says, seal it up. And what seal up means in the book of Daniel and other places, seal up simply means do not reveal it. Don't let people know what's in it. In fact, don't even write it down. Why? And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to what I told you the very first day we started looking at the book of Revelation. Remember the verse Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses laid out all the covenant, all the law before Israel. And after he did that, he said, Now the things that are revealed belong to you and your children, but the secret things belong to the Lord. In other words, in the book of Revelation, we're getting a lot of information that we didn't otherwise have. But at the end of the day, God is still God and we are still human beings. And we won't know everything. It's not, our, it's not our privilege to know everything. It's not our business to know everything. There's a sense in which God says to them, you know what, don't tell them that. They're just going to have to trust me. I know I've told you before, when my girls were little, I used to love, I'd come in the house and say, all right, everyone go get in the car. And inevitably, they'd say, where are we going? And I would always reply, do you trust me? Yeah. Get in the car. Where are we going, though? Do you trust me? Yeah. Get in the car. All right. 100% of the time when I did that, it was something good. 100% of the time. Dairy Queen, donuts, candy, something. Everyone get in the car. Where are we going? Do you trust me? And you know, at the end of the day, they sort of didn't. No matter how many times I've been faithful, and in a sense, I think that's what's going on here. God's saying, do you trust me? He almost like baits us. There's seven more things coming, but uh, uh, don't tell him. Trust me? Do you guys trust me that you're going to make it through? I said that everyone who's sealed is going to make it through. Everyone who's sealed is part of the 144,000. Everyone who's sealed is part of every people, tongue, and tribe. Without number, do you trust me? Because some hard things are going to come, and you're going to need to trust me. If you can't trust me with the seven thunders, not knowing what they are, you're really going to have a hard time with what's coming next. So 
With that said, he moves on, verses 4, 5, and 6. Let me read those to you. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it and that there would be no more delay. And the question is no more delay about what? And I think it's an answer. All of the, everything after the fifth seal, most people, that, at least that I've been reading, agree with, is an answer to the prayer of the saints in Revelation chapter 6. Remember in Revelation 6, the fifth seal, the saints say, How long, O God? How long until we are avenged upon the earth? They have been persecuted and killed, and God said, Wait a little longer until a full number of your brethren have come in. And then immediately he starts to bring vengeance for them on the seventh seal. And in this, after the sixth trumpet, the answer to how long, we actually know. There will be no more delay. After the sixth trumpet, once the seventh trumpet blows, it's over. In other words, the jig is up. There is no time. Now, why is that important? Because if you're thinking about all the people around you, if, in fact, you think, do they need to know Jesus, do you think that, you know, every day is one day closer to a day they might not have to, to, to hear? In other words, there is coming a time when there is no more time. And the angel says, at this point, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, how much longer? There is no more delay. Once the seventh trumpet blows, it is over. The time for having time is over. People that don't know Jesus, at that point, it's over for them. Does that motivate you? I mean, think about it. You know, I read a story by, um, that John Ortberg told, and it was about a fictional, I think I brought it, I hope. It was about a fiction, I hope it was a fictional Peace Corps manual, because if it wasn't fictional, it explains probably a lot about what's going on in the Peace Corps. And basically this story, it, it's what to do if you're attacked by an anaconda. Ten things. Number one, if you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Number three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight against one another. Number three, this, or four, the snake will begin to climb over your body. Number five, do not panic. <laughs> Number six, the snake will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Step six will take a long time. Step eight, after a while, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take out your knife, and very gently slide it into the snake's mouth, then suddenly sever the snake's head. Step nine, be sure your knife is sharp. Step ten, be sure you have your knife. So what's the point to that story? The point to the story is at some point you get to a point where preparation doesn't matter anymore. If you're not prepared to be attacked by an anaconda, guess what? It's too late once he starts eating you. Nothing else works. There comes a time when there is no more time, and that's true of the gospel as well. Too many times as a church, our church and every church I've been in, we sort of act like there's all the time in the world. What really matters is that we have a great vacation Bible school. What really matters is that we have great Sunday school for our members. And everything in the New Testament screams the exact opposite. What really matters is what's going on outside the church. What really matters is all the people in the world who don't know Jesus that someday will have to face the wrath of the Lamb and the church, it would seem by their actions, do not care one bit. We talk about it. We talk about it all the time. We even do classes sometimes. And yet, until we actually become active, 
There comes a time when there will be no more time. Think about that. The people that you love, your family members, your friends, your neighbors, we talked about it last week. And this week during the interlude, even though it's a time that where, where John and those who are listening get to sort of take a breather, it still reminds us that there's a time when there won't be any more time, that the jig will be up. What comes next? The mystery, verse 7, he says, But in those days, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And I love this. So what is going to happen? How is it going to be the end at the seventh trumpet? What is it going to mean? Well, at the end of the day, what the seventh trumpet will mean is that the mystery of God will be fulfilled. That's it. Simple as that. What is the mystery of God? Well, first of all, what does it mean for something to be fulfilled? Fulfilled doesn't mean just that, you know, we tend to think of it as something was predicted and then it happened, predicted and happened. Fulfillment in the New Testament has more to do with the fullness of something. That the fullness of something finally happened. And so the mystery of God at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the fullness of what God was, the mystery that God was revealing, has, will, be, will have fully, completely, and utterly happened. And what is the mystery that has been revealed? And the answer is pretty simple. It's the gospel of Jesus. Remember Mark chapter 4. Jesus has just given the parable of the sower. And it says that when he was alone, those around him, the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Another translation would say, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those outside, everything is in parables. You see, the mystery of the kingdom of God isn't something that's constantly shrouded. When the New Testament talks about mystery, it talks about the mystery is something that once was shrouded, but now is revealed for everyone to see. So in some sense, it's no longer a mystery. In fact, it's never been a mystery for those who had eyes to see. And that's what he says next. He says, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And what does he mean there? Well, first, it's helpful to know that the word there is the word evangelion. In other words, the mystery has been revealed just as he evangelized to his servants, the prophets. That the good news of Jesus was announced all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Because, as you've heard me say a number of times, that the whole Bible is one story. It's one story from beginning to the end. The story begins with this person named Adam who fails to live up to the righteous requirements of God's law in, it, in, in the Garden of Eden, and he is kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and everything goes horribly wrong, and it ends with another person coming. The Apostle Paul would call him the second Adam, or the last Adam, who does live up to the righteous standards of God's law, and who does act as our representative, and who does rise again from the dead, and who does renew all of creation. So at the end of the book of Revelation, the tree of life is there. Eden is there, but it's bigger and better than ever. And one story has been told from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And every story is, is about Jesus. In fact, I started reading, uh, someone gave me the Jesus Storybook Bible recently. I had to read it. Oh, I know, it was because I was teaching Sunday school. And Judy, my wife, came down. I'd read chapter 1 about the fall and chapter 3. Or chapter 1 was about creation, chapter 3 was about the fall. And my wife came downstairs and I was just weeping my eyes out. She says, everything okay? And I'm, I held up that book and I said, this story is so good. It's the gospel story. 
It's the story we have that has been announced and it's been revealed. So when we go to the nations, we don't go with nothing. We don't go and say, come and be like us, come be legalists like us, or come be Presbyterians like us. We come and say that there is one who has died for you. Would you trust him? Would you trust him? Finally, well, there's two more slides, I think. He says in verse 8 through 10, he says, God, the angel says to him, he says, well, the voice says, he said, then the voice I heard from heaven said, spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, told him to give me the little scroll. And he said, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now, what's going on here? Basically, this passage is almost word for word from Ezekiel chapter 2, or at least parts of it are. And so if you want to understand what, what's going on with him eating the scroll and it being sweet as honey and eventually being bitter, you've got to know what happens in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. And in Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, basically God calls Ezekiel and says, I want you to go preach. Take this scroll and eat it, and it will be in your mouth as sweet as honey. Eventually it will become bitter. And he says, I'm not asking you, Ezekiel, to go preach to the nations. I'm not asking you to go to preach to a people that doesn't know me. I'm asking you to go preach to Israel. And what is Ezekiel supposed to, to preach to Israel? Let me summarize by saying that they're off mission. That Israel wasn't living out the gospel the way they should have been. Remember, God called Abraham and he said, I'm calling you to be a blessing to all nations. And then he eventually formed Israel. And he said, Israel, out of you will come the Messiah. And Israel, all nations should be drawn into you. You are to be the light of the world. Remember, Jesus said that also about the church in Matthew chapter 7, I believe. That Israel was not living up to its mission. And its mission was to be a witness of God's glory to the nations. And so what is going on here? I think it's the same thing. Who is John's audience and what is he trying to get them to do? He's trying to get them to live out their mission, the churches. He's trying to get us to live out our mission. And he says, John, I want you to eat this scroll. On one hand with prophets, that usually means I want you to embody this message. And on one hand it's sweet and on the other hand it's bitter. And no one really knows exactly what he means. Most people agree that it means on one hand the gospels, the message is a sweet message. That Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. He rose again from the dead. The response oftentimes, if not most oftentimes, is bitter. The response oftentimes in the context of the church is bitter. In fact, it's oftentimes more bitter than it is from the outside. But John has to, to bring the message. He has to bring it to the church, but he also has to bring it to the nations. And that's where we go. Finally, the last thing we'll look at. He says in verse 11, he says, And I was told... And, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, why did I, I, I never put Greek words up on screen. Why did I put one up today? The reason I put it up today, that's the Greek word epi. It's because the whole, depending on how you read the word epi, is how you read the verse. Because the word epi, on one hand, could mean the word about. So when he says, and I was told again you must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings, or... It could mean against. You must prophesy against, prophesy against many nations and tongues and people and kings. Which one is it? There's no way to know for sure. What makes more sense in the context is to preach against. 
Now, why, do, why is that important? Because up to this point in the book of Revelation, whenever you hear phrases like every tribe, tongue, and nation, or every people group, and that kind of thing, it's a positive thing. They're, they're around the throne. After this point in the Re- book of Revelation, it's a negative thing, most often. It, it, in other words, when you see positive views of every tongue, tribe, and nation, they will be around the throne of God, but there will also be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who scorn God and who do not want to follow him. And what he's saying to John and what he's saying ultimately to the church is you must preach to them anyway. I mean, so often we don't preach to people because we think, yeah, they wouldn't believe anyway. That really isn't the option that we have. What he's saying to, to John is you must go do it. You must do it. And it, he needs this word because after... Chapter 11, as I told you before, becomes pretty ugly. Notice what he doesn't say to John. He said, John, I want you to pray about it. John, I want you to pray about whether you're going to go prophesy against the nations. Right? In, in when, at least my experience, oftentimes when Christians want to say no, but they're really not brave enough, they say, let me pray about it. Hey, can you lead a small group? Hey, let me pray about it. And they go out of town for a few weeks and hope you don't get back to them. Something. He doesn't say, and he doesn't say John, will you think about it? John, will you think about whether or not you want to keep preaching? He doesn't. He recommissions him. He says, you must preach. And what you see over and over again in the book of Revelation, you also see it in the prophets, is that John is actually recommissioned to preach several times. And I think the same is true of us, that we also need to be recommissioned probably every week to be reminded that our job is to bring the gospel to the nations. And there's only so much time. And there's only so much time to address it. You know, for some reason I thought of check engine lights. We've been dealing in our family with check engine lights recently. I hate check engine lights. Who, who loves check engine lights? Can we just have a show of hands? Right, I remember uh, uh, last year I went to pick my wife up from the mechanic, and on the way to the mechanic, my check engine light came on. It cost me $900 to pick my wife up from the mechanic that day. And so in the context of the, figuring out what's a check engine light, you know, CarMD said uh, that 50% of the people who have a major auto repair for the past two to three months have been ignoring their check engine light. That's pretty wild. I don't ignore it because I'm just so ADD. I can't, like, not focus on it. It bothers me. But some people are, will, are able in, to, to ignore the check engine light to such an extent that 50% of the people with major repairs that could have been taken care of, or some people I know have figured out how to just reset it. Right? You press your speedometer thing, you hold it for 10 seconds, whatever it is, and it resets, and then it goes away, and everything's okay now because the light's not on. You see what you see over and over again in the book of Revelation? The, book of, the whole book of Revelation, in some sense, is like a big check engine light. It's a big check engine light. Are you outwardly faced? Are you witnessing to the world? Do you have your priorities straight? Do you care more about what people in church wear rather than the fact that people are there hearing the gospel? Do you care more about the music than the fact that people are worshiping? Do you care more about everything else but the fact that people are coming to know Jesus? That's a check engine light. And eventually, if you ignore the check engine light, things begin to break down. And in a lot of churches, that's why they're broken down. Charles Spurgeon said, if you preach the gospel and people are coming to Jesus, most problems in churches just go away. They just go away. And that's my prayer for our church. Not this, that problems go away, although I have prayed that, to be honest with you. But that so many people are coming to know Jesus here that we won't have time to be petty. Think about that. Let me pray for us. 
Father, I pray that as we continue through this book of Revelation, we can keep talking and talking and talking and talking as a whole book comes together. I pray that you would give us a heart, a heart for those outside, a heart for those who don't know Jesus, a heart uh, to, to, to suffer for other people, to, to at least uh, be willing to be inconvenienced for them. And I pray that you would just make this a place where people come to know Christ. In his name we pray, amen and amen.